As we uh, get started, I feel like there's been at times I'm uh, pushing some buttons like, man alive, this guy's like a Marine sergeant, all these, you know. I, I remember uh, my father telling me he was uh, 16 and a half when he went into, uh, it was at Paris Island, and he told me about how just ruthless and painful it was, these sergeants. And he said, uh, I mean, they just made it so miserable for us. And then he said, when I ended up on Guam and Iwo Jima, I understood why. Is what they knew is that they were being tough on us then, so we would not lose our life later. And uh, there's some stuff that's kind of hard to hear for all of us, especially as the culture keeps changing. And it's so counterculture, I think, even inside the church at times. So uh, don't, don't be discouraged like your, your children are going to miss out. Uh, if you teach them to suffer well, I mean, some of us are, uh, we have hobbies. So I'm always reading leadership material. And um, if you've read any of the research now on um, resilience, right? Resilient people. Resilience is a higher predictor of success in every area of your life, higher than IQ, higher than EQ, and higher than talent. So some of you are thinking, you know, I want my, my, my little boy or my little girl to really be, teach him to suffer well. Teach him to suffer well. Produces resilience. It's the people that bounce back who don't give up. You don't learn that unless you get to experience multiple smaller, difficult times that feel so unfair. But have a mom, a dad, or a mom or a dad that's with you and encouraging you and reminding you that you're loved. And like Joseph, there is a good God. It doesn't feel that way. He's in control. It doesn't feel that way. Trust him. You'll see. Then we talked about um, working unto the Lord. And... Um, one of the things my job over the years is I, uh, we, we have a ministry to CEOs and business leaders and as I talk to people who run companies, they say, you know something, it is so hard to find anyone who comes to work on time, does their job, doesn't whine, and stays for any amount of time. He said, if we can find anybody who has a work ethic, the potential is almost unlimited because it is so rare in our day. I mean, have you noticed, you know, on, there, there's hiring everywhere right now. People can't find anyone that, forget working well, that even want to work. Because the culture has told us that it's either a necessary evil or, um, you know, sort of the mantra is do as little as you can for as long as you can to earn as much as you can. And that attitude is everywhere. I, um, you know, we sang a song, it came to my mind, and so I'll, I'll share this, uh, you know, uh, The Goodness of God. Uh, my son wrote that song, uh, I think, along with Ed Cash and a few others. And since that time, he was the one that ran off, and, um, you know, I told him, you really ought to get a real job, and, uh, you know, he doesn't even have my DNA, so this is not a father bragging, I got to adopt him. But I think he's got 20 Dove Awards, two Grammys, has been a songwriter of the year 11 of the last 13 years, uh, discovered people like 429, Lauren Dangle, and, and just the list goes on and on and on. And um, 
And I'll have people come to me. It used to be, you know, I was sort of the pastor of a fairly large church, and he had to live with, oh, your dad's the pastor. You know, I think he wanted to change his last name growing up. And now, when I go places, it's like, oh, do you know Jason Ingram? And I said, well, well you know, mildly, you know. And, uh, yeah, he's my son. Oh, well, now I'm, now I'm a somebody, you know. <laughs> and, um, and, I, I, and I want you to hear something, parents. Then I'll have pa- people tell me things like, Wow, your son is so talented. Maybe. Now, don't get me wrong. He obviously has, I mean, you don't do all that and not have any talent. What they don't know that is uh, he had a a little bit of talent and he had a dream. And so he got signed for like barely minimum wage. And his first year as a songwriter, he wrote 100 songs of which no one played on any album anywhere. And so he thought he was going to get cut. So they said, you know, we're going to give you one more year. So they gave him another year. So he wrote another 100 songs. I mean, he's, he's a hard worker. And he perseveres. Hmm. Okay, yeah, that was good. Way to go, son. And he had one song that was on, you know, in the old days when there was like a, you know, there's the good song, then there's an okay song that you have to throw on there. That, after 200 songs, that's all he had. And they, they said, well, you know, maybe this isn't for you. Because he knew he was a worship leader and some other stuff and had moved to Nashville. He said, no, no, this is what God's called me to do. And so they said, well, we'll give you one more year. And then there was a song that was kind of a breakthrough song. And then the rest is history. Um, I'm sure he has talent. And what he had to learn was he was way better writing songs with people and helping them get better and arranging things and figuring out what melody would take their, all, all the songwriters, whether it's Chris Tomlin or Matt Redman or others that he writes with will say, I often bring a B song to Jason and we work on it for a couple days and it becomes an A song. And others would tell the same thing. He, he would find people that no one knew about and he saw potential and he would write with them And he said, Dad, what I realized was my gift is not that I'm necessarily a great songwriter. What I'm good at is what they have is they're a whole orchestra. They can sing at levels that I can't. They they can play instruments better than I ever could. But what I see is how it fits together and how I can help them. And then when we work together, what I want you to get is if you teach your kids to work hard and to suffer well, it doesn't mean they're going to have a terrible life and not be successful. It just might mean they go a different path and they have God's favor upon their life and he might do something that surprises them and surprises you. And they don't have to be famous and they don't have to be rich, but they could have great joy and be much like Christ. Well, we're going to uh, start a little bit differently uh, because you've seen, everybody have your notes? You've kind of got the idea that, yeah, okay, I'm going to pick them up. Great. And um, I'd like you to stand, if you will, and we're going to, I want to give a backdrop because this is one of those messages that has way, way too much material. And so I'm going to, I'm going to preach a message. It's going to be a little box. And I want you to think of this, what we're going to do is this is the backdrop, you know, like a screen. Like once I start talking and we start interacting and you start thinking and, you know, I'll tell you, are you ready? You know, spoiler alert. Teach your kids to manage their wealth wisely, all right? I'm going to say that again. Teach your kids and grandkids to manage their wealth. Their wealth is their time, their talent, and their treasure. Teach them to be a manager of it 
in a way that's biblical and wise. That, that's the whole message. But here's the backdrop. It was near the end, and here's the picture that your children, and probably most of us need to be reminded of. Uh, he's hanging out with the disciples. They're talking about this temple, and it's near the end of his ministry. And I mean, he's told them, look, guys, I'm going to die. Three days, I'm going to come back. There's a whole different agenda. My kingdom isn't like that kingdom. And they still couldn't get it. And so he tells them a parable to prepare them so they'll manage their life wisely. So uh, we're standing because I've been to a few churches that when they read God's word, they said, will you all please stand in honor for the living word of God? I've always been impressed by that. And again, it was like a man going on a journey, Matthew 25, who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. And the man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the man that had two talents gained two more. But the one who'd received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought another five and said, Master, you entrusted me with these five talents. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, and you know this right, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and don't miss this, share your master's happiness or joy. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, that good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many more. Come and share your master's joy. Then the man who had received the one talent said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not gathered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here it is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and I gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, you would have received back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. Summary. For everyone who has will be given more. And he, who, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And throw the worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ends the reading of God's word. You can sit down. And before I ask you a few questions, let me summarize this. Very familiar. There's a master and servants. The master is someone is going off. The other parables talk about minas. And he says he's going to be made king in another land, is going to return. Uh, Luke gives us the same parable with some different details. He's entrusted it to the servants while he's gone, so they are his stewards. They don't own any of the money. It's his money. It's the king's money, and he gives it to them and tells them, I'm going to come back. 
They have absolute time and absolute freedom to do with it whatever they want. When he returns, his expectation is that they would have a good return on what was entrusted to them. Uh, there's a reward that is given, and his goal and desire is they could enter into the joy and the happiness of what they've accomplished together. There's clear accountability with consequences, both good and bad, and the master's motive in all that he did was that he might enjoy and experience a great harvest out of what he's entrusted to those that he gave. And with that now, I want to ask some, some questions, and th these aren't hypothetical, okay? And I would like you to think about how you answer them, and then I'd like you to think about how do you think the people that you love the most would answer these questions? Your 12-year-old, your 18-year-old, your 22-year-old, your 9-year-old, okay? You ready? Question number one, uh, where the topic is money. How much is enough? I'd like you to write down a dollar amount. If I had this much, you'd go, I don't need any more. Or at least do it in your head, okay? This isn't hypothetical. I mean, mentally, or at least, you know, if you have a pen, I mean, how much would be enough? Is it a million? Two? Five? Thirteen? A hundred? I mean, everyone's got a number. You guys are looking at me like you've never thought of that. Um, okay, maybe this will get easier. Um, how much is too much? A dollar amount. Boy, if I ever had a million and one, that would, or, or ten million and one, or, you know, I think I, I think I could handle 90 million as a good steward, but anything over that, I, nah, nah, not me. Now, now, if I ask you to write down a dollar amount, what would you say? Your body language is saying, he's just messing with us. I'm going to mess with you more. Okay, uh, question. This is good to talk about with your kids. Uh, can I be both godly and rich? What do you think? Okay, well, gosh, hey, we got a, a verbal response on that one. Uh, if riches and material goods can choke out the spiritual life, is poverty God's calling if we really want to be spiritually mature? And if not, then what is? I mean, everyone was really quick. Can you be godly and rich? Yeah! Then, well, so what about where Jesus says the deceitfulness of riches will choke out the truth of the word of God in your life? Okay. Some of you are thinking, I'm going for coffee right now because this is not a good message at all. Why does Jesus warn against the deceitfulness of riches, do you think? Might be because 50% of all divorces are around money issues. Might be because money will direct the course of your life, your kid's life, your priorities, and your affections because wherever your money or your treasure goes, your heart will follow. It might be because money is the number one competitor for the soul of every one of your kids and that you can't serve two masters. It might be because a man or a woman's life does not consist of the amount or extent of their positions. And Jesus said, watch out and be on your guard against all kinds of greed because a man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Now those are just 
kind of what Jesus said, but how, do you, how would your kids? I mean, if you ask your kids, like, how much is enough? Or how much is too much? Or how would, how would they answer? Here's what I'm going to, I'm going to just throw this out. You haven't had the talk. No. You know, the talk, you know, they're preteens. Used to be when they were teenagers, but now it's preteens and maybe almost earlier. I mean, the talk. And I don't mean the sex talk. That, that one you better get with as well. The money talk. According to Scripture, your child or your grandchild's relationship with money is 10 times more dangerous than their relationship with the opposite sex. I was with two, uh, two good buddies, and they, uh, they both do well. I mean, they're not super, super wealthy, but, but they do well. And they're, you know, they live here in the Silicon Valley. And we were having this conversation, and I, I was telling him that, you know, everywhere I go, uh, all last year was pretty minimal COVID, but all this year, and until both the money runs out and the books run out, uh, a friend and I have a belief. And our belief is, is that if people ever caught God's view of generosity that's not really about money and that it's about being really smart instead of about being dumb, that it would change their whole life. And so everywhere I go, it doesn't matter what I'm talking on. So every conference, uh, you know, I was scheduled to teach at Liberty. They had 10,000 students. We're going to give one to every student. Until, until they run out, I'm not going to speak anywhere without giving people this tiny little book that I think it changed my life in how I thought about money. And I want to tell you that there's nothing more important that you can talk about and process that's more deceitful. Remember the parable uh, where Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, you know, the seed was dropped on four different types of paths, you know, the hard path, right? You know, Satan comes up and gets it, and then there's a path that it, the soil is not very deep, and it gets down until there's persecution, and, and then there's the, the path where it grows up, and then the thorns, and the thorns are the desires for other things, the deceitfulness of riches and the pleasures of this world that choke out God's word. And then there's the seed, which is God's word, and the sower is Jesus, on a good and honest heart, and it multiplies 30, 60, 100-fold. It just... We, 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 you, we, you are currently living in the most materialistic um, world that Christians have ever lived in in all of history, especially being an American. The transfer of wealth, I think I, uh, think I still might have it. Yes, it's Upholstra and Dardaman. The transfer of wealth from 1998 to 2052 will be $52 trillion. I mean, even with our debt, that's a lot of money, right? And then the, the whole article is one um, was interesting is according to all their research, 70% of all wealth transferred to children and grandchildren, 70% will be completely squandered and gone. And then the article goes on to say, it's not because they don't have good estate planning, it's not because they don't have good lawyers. It's not because, uh, you know, we don't have great tools. And it's not because they don't have a good charitable remainder trust. He said all those things are in place. 
And then the article goes on and talks about they squander the money, they argue about the money, they don't have the faith or the values, and that all that money and all that work that many of us have done to, quote, see that your children or grandchildren are going to do well, we have passed on that without the values and the character to take care of it. And so all of that was to get your attention. And if you'll open your notes now, I want to do a brief theology of wealth, which means that it's got to be uh, sort of very top level, right? Lots of books written about money. And I'm going to, uh, I'm going to try something. And but, but would you hear just on advance, I'm not upset with you and I'm gonna ask some questions and I, I have a prediction about some of the answers and you might feel a little bit like either bad or naked or I should know that. And if you don't, the goal is not that you feel terrible about yourself, the goal is learn, okay? Because I'm gonna share the most basic things that the scripture teaches about money and then I'm gonna ask you a handful of questions because if you don't know them, how in the world are you gonna pass them on to your kids? Okay, uh, this teaching style is helpful for some and others just get mad. So I'm going to give it my best, most kind shot. Um, okay, a theology of stewardship. Are you ready? God owns everything. Where would that be found? If you said to one of your kids, what you need to understand is that bike is not yours. This house isn't ours. The paycheck's not mine. We work, but everything we have comes from God. We are stewards. And you would find that where in the Bible? Yeah, James 1, every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above. Maybe Psalm 50, verse 12, the earth is mine and the fullness thereof, everything belongs to me. All I want you to get is that you have to have concepts, but you've got to help your kids know where they are because... What's happening in our world now? The biggest issue is not all the cultural changes, all the gender changes, all the sexual changes. That is not the issue. That's the symptoms. The core is the authority of God's word. And it's happening inside of lots of churches. It's that what God's word is now in many churches and among many Christians, let alone the outside world, is those are nice opinions. And what you want is you want, you want the truth of God's word, but they need to know where it's at. And they learn where it's at from you. Second, God has entrusted uh, his things, time, talent, and treasure, uh, for us to manage for him. Now, this should be easy when we just read a passage. We would find that in Matthew, Matthew, Matthew. 25. So we got that number okay. Right, right. We just, we just read that. Okay. You know, I'm going to forget this teaching style and just teach this. This is not working. Uh, God expects a positive return on his event investment, right? Did we just hear that recently? Right? Um, Jesus, the picture is, I'm going to be crowned as king, and I'm going to come back. And he's going to ask every one of your kids and every one of your grandkids and you and me, not how much or how big, or how you did compared to anybody else. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will look you in the eye and say, I gave you this much time, this much money, this much leadership gift, this much opportunity, this much education. I put you in this country at this season, at this time, 
to co-labor with me to bring my kingdom into existence. So what did you do with all that I gave you? And then you get a grade. Not about whether you go to heaven or not, but what kind of reward or loss you'll experience. The Bema Seat of Christ. God will hold you accountable. I'll give you this one. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. The Apostle Paul will say, we will all appear before, he uses that word, the Bema Seat. It's the judgment of believers for their works. God wants you to share his joy. Fill that in, joy. We learn that from Matthew 25. You need to always remember the spirit behind it's not just that every good thing, you, you heard that song, right? His goodness, you, you know that line in the song that says, his goodness is, help me here, running after, his running after me. You know where you get that? That's Psalm 23. At the end of Psalm 23, it's often translated, you know, his, his, the, old, the old King James is like, his, his goodness and mercy follows me. The word for follow in Hebrew, though, it's pursue. It's running after you. God, God doesn't want your kids to get second rate or your grandkids to get second rate or you. Every command in Scripture is never a prohibition. It's guardrails to ensure that you stay between them so that you get the absolute best of everything, the best of relationships, the best future, the best of everything, being the best job that brings the greatest joy and the greatest fulfillment. Your heavenly Father... Christ died in your place. He that spared not his own son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Our lack of trusting in God is, is not so much a lack of our faith, it's a warped view of who God is. If you believe God was good and kind and generous and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, whatever he would say, you go, I'm in. Man, I'm in. Instead, we got a commercial that says, you know, if you drive this kind of car, have this kind of pur purse, brush your teeth, and it's this bright, and then you'll be cool and bad and sexy, and then your life will work out. How's that working for everybody? We're inundated by a world system that promises one thing and can't deliver, and a God who has declared, I want to give you the best. Will you please obey me? The Old Testament roots here, Genesis chapter 1, Verses uh, 26 to 27. I, I want you to read this because, okay, this is before there's sin. This is a perfect environment. This is your heavenly father. This is the triune God saying, let us make man in our image, in the likeness, in our likeness. And let them, what, what's he want us to do? To rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move on the ground. In other words... You know, sometimes you say to a two-year-old, look at this nice sandbox, and, and here's some, some little trucks, and here's some things, and you, you just, whatever you want to do in the sandbox. And God says, here's your sandbox. It's the earth. The sky, the trees, the animals. I created all this. Now, are you ready? Let me see what you can do with it. Use your creativity. Write songs. Write poems. Build things. Become an architect. Create. Develop, and when you do it, do it unto me because you're reflecting my very image, the DNA that I've put inside of you. It's so exciting. 
He goes on to say, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it. There's that word again, rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they will be yours for food. And it's just this picture of, I own it all, I'm entrusting it to you. Job would say, um, in a critical time of his life, Job got up and tore his robe, everything of value, children, animals, assets, money, he lost. He tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and in worship said, naked I came in from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. You come out naked, and other than, you know, they kind of embalm you if you go that route, or you're a lot of ashes, and they fix you up to look pretty decent, but you, you leave with nothing. And it's living in that. It's the I deserve. It, it's, 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 it's that you have to break so early. I mean, if you don't believe in original sin, just get two two-year-olds and three cookies. Two two-year-olds and one cookie is even more exciting. But, you know, we don't grow out of that, do we? Mine, mine, mine. Fear, fear, fear. God wants to free us from that. That's the Old Testament roots. Uh, the biblical profile, and, and I put these three. Nehemiah, uh, God put him in a pit. You know why God makes you rich? He makes you rich so that he can position you to use your wealth to fulfill his greatest purposes and so that you can enjoy it deeply. There's, there's two, when you talk about money, there's always two extremes. There's the, you know, everyone should sell their car and then it's like, well, what should we have? A bicycle. Well, what kind of bicycle? Well, that's too fancy of a bicycle. Well, maybe, right? There's no end to what you should drive or how simple your life can be. And then there's the other end is that the blessing of God is the more and more and more and more and more money you have, God always wants everyone to be rich and healthy and happy and never have a problem. 1 Timothy 6, if you want a passage um, that balances it out, I think it's about 19 through 21, command those who... Paul to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or arrogant and fix their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, and it doesn't end there, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. See, what, what he says is, money's not the problem, it's the love of money that's the problem. Riches aren't the problem, it's do the riches have you? And most of us, evangelicals, would say, oh, they don't have me. Really? I, I just, just pause. Uh, you know, the men's movement and small groups and women's groups, and I really believe in all of that, and it's so important, and... We talk about vulnerability and authenticity and being real and sharing your heart, right? 
Like, this is, I mean, this is, we know we can't live without that. And I've been in a lot of men's group, and we've created, I don't know, 25 small group materials. And I've been in them, and I've, uh, I can only speak for men because, for obvious reasons, I've never been in a women's group. Um, but I've said to guys, hey, you know, we all struggle with, you know, eyes and lust of the flesh, so I want you to really pray. We're going to be really honest about where we struggle in those areas, and why I've had guys share their heart, and, you know, hey, man, I'm struggling with this. I mean, just raw. And um, I've often said to a group of guys, next week, I'd like you to bring in your tax returns. And I want all of us from every source to put, this is how much we make from every resource. This is how much we give, and this is how much we spend, and this is how much we're indebted today. Why don't we put that all out? Because according to Jesus, if you ever really want to know where your heart's at, just look where your money goes. I've had very, very few people ever take me up on that one. Now, to, to be fair, uh, what I realized, I had, I had never ever written a book. I, never, I, I prayed about writing a book, but I didn't think I'd ever get to write a book. And, um, and there was a guy, actually, was up here. I don't know if you remember Jack Cowles. And I think he was on the board here years ago. And he went to uh, Santa Cruz Bible Church when I was there. And so uh, the, the radio ministry kind of went from a few hundred to, you know, lots of stations. And people were now asking me to, like, could you turn that message into a book? And I'd never done any of that. And he sat down with me somewhere outside and said, now, Chip, you know, there's only about three things that take people like you out, right? You know, they get involved sexually with someone. They get full of themselves, you know, right? They get arrogant and think they're wonderful. Or they get messed up with money. So, you know, I think you got a good marriage. You have good, you know, barriers in. No one's immune. And uh, just make sure you never have those kind of boards that think you're really wonderful. They really love you. They support you. But make sure there's at least two or three guys that... <laughs> He didn't use these words, but kick you in the rear. And uh, I knew exactly what he meant. And, um, but he said, you know, often it's the areas where, you know, I had four kids. I lived in Santa Cruz. I didn't have a big money issue because we didn't have any. Um, so he said, that's not the issue. So he said, there's this group called Ron Blue Incorporated, and they're a Christian financial council. I'm going to pay for your first year so you can have a financial plan. And I thought, wow, Jack, that's great. I don't need a financial plan. I mean, I get $3,000 in, in savings total. And I'm putting $100 a month in a retirement. And I got two kids in college and two more. And he goes, no, you need a financial plan. And we did and sat down with these guys. And, and then I never forget Jack. He said, well, it's easy, it's easy to make financial decisions when you don't have any money because your motives are pretty pure. When they start adding zeros, it gets a lot harder. So he said, um, so do you want to get where, let's just hypothetically say maybe you end up selling a few books. Do you want to be in a position where you need the income of books, where you have to work outside your normal job to sustain you? I said, no, I don't. He says, well, why don't you decide, I don't care the number, why don't you decide in advance what you're going to give of the books before you ever write one? I thought, man, that's really, that's really great. And so Teresa and I prayed, and we thought about it, and we thought, you know, we, we, we had been progressive givers, so, you know, when we were 
just starting out, it was 10%, and then it was 11, and then 12, and then 13, and then 19, and then 20. We just kept, as God increased our income, we believed that's why he gave us more money, wasn't as Randy Pope, not Randy Pope. Who's Randy? Who's Alcorn? Randy Alcorn, his little book, he goes, God doesn't always give you more money to raise your standard of living. He does it to raise your standard of giving. And, and so it was like, well, Randy, that's really good. So we, we took a big chunk of whatever God would ever provide, and we told him in advance. That was one of the best decisions we ever made. Have you had that conversation with your kids? How much is enough? And it doesn't start when they're in college and deciding on a major. You teach them when they're small all the way through. Nehemiah was very wealthy because God positioned him. Barnabas was very wealthy and actually financed. Remember he sold that big piece of property on the island of Cyprus, which would be like owning, if you can imagine, you know, four or five square miles in downtown San Francisco or New York City, lots of money. And he, um, in the New Testament, it's Luke chapter 16. And I think most of you probably are familiar with the passage. It's the passage of the unrighteous steward, right? And he knows he's going to get fired. And so he says to himself, and this is the point of the parable, okay, when I get fired, what am I going to do? I'm, you know, too proud to beg and I'm too weak to dig. And so he brings in all of his master's uh, accounts and he basically cooks the books so that these people are indebted. And the principle of it is, in your time in life now, use your money in such a way so that you'll be received when you get to heaven. And then he caps it off in verse uh, 10, which I gave you. He is faithful in a very little thing, is faithful also in much. And he is unrighteous in a very little thing, is unrighteous also in much. And the little thing is money. And then he goes on to say, if, if, if God can't trust you with little things like money, he'll never trust you with tr true riches. True riches are the souls of people. True riches are eternal impact. True riches might just be the soul of your son or your daughter or your grandson or your granddaughter. I mean, if God can't trust us with the... Uh, in this little book, I talk about that actually uh, money is like the training wheels of generosity. And that's just how you get going. And then he teaches you about your time. Then he teaches you about your reputation. Then he teaches you about giving your life like Jesus did. And then he teaches you eventually to give up what's most precious to you the way the Father did. And there's this progression of generosity. And what it is, is it's an expansion of the heart. And, and here's, but the, underneath of all that is this promise. Give and it'll be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, back into your lap. For whatever measure or size, you know, if you give with a spoon, you get a teaspoon back. You give with a truck, you get a truckload back. You give with a semi, you get a... He's just saying, and it's never necessarily in kind. This has been perverted, but that, it's Luke 6:38. It is not a financial passage. It's an axiomatic kingdom passage. And, and so the most generous people, because God owns it. I, I don't own anything. You don't own anything. The question you wake up every day is, God, what do you want to do with the time that you gave me today? God, what do you want to do with the money you gave me today? God, what do you want to do with the gift that you gave me today? God, what do you want me to be 
to steward this, this child. Are you ready for it? Your kids aren't even yours. Right? They're a gift from the Lord. So Lord, what? It changes everything. So how do you do it? Let me give you a handful of ways. Number one, this is how to pass on to your children. How to become faithful in the little things. Number one, help them recognize the three purposes of money are giving, saving, and spending. When they're little, we put three jars on their dresser. You give them 10 pennies, 10 dimes, little allowance. They make their bed, create ways. The first penny goes into that one. The second penny goes into the savings one. And the eighth penny goes into savings. And they learn that early on. It's just to keep it simple. As they get older, you get an Excel spreadsheet. And whether it's an allowance or whether it's a gift or whether it's this, you want them, okay, this is, a, every good thing comes from God. This is what it is. And you can teach them the 10, 10, 80 principle. And then as they have more, as you, you want them to learn from your heart. In fact, for some of you, I thought of this this morning as I was praying. You know, especially like a 12-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old, I don't know. Give them $100. Give them 10 crisp $10 bills. And so you can spend this any way you want. You can buy something. You can give it away. You can save it. You can do whatever you want. But 30 days from now, we're going to have a meeting. We'll go get a milkshake or whatever they like to do. And I want you to tell me what you did with the $100. And here's what you're going to find out. You'll know right where your kid's heart is. Then you can start teaching them. Uh, our, uh, we, with our older kids, I've got to keep, keep the pace here, Dave. <laughs> um, with our older kids, we didn't have money, so they learned. Um, my kids, it was like, you want Jordans? Great. At Big Five, I can get them for $36 a good Great shoe. For back then, you could for ninety dollars. Then it was a hundred. You could get Jordans. I'll give you thirty-five dollars, and if and and you can you add whatever you want and get any kind of shoes you want. They did that about twice. About the third time, it was you know, Dad, those shoes are the same as the Jordans. They just don't have the logo. I said, man, whatever decision, it's your money. But we were we we became more affluent. We moved from here to Atlanta. You know, my my house cost went like this. My house size went like that. Um, cost of living went down, kids graduated from college, and as we became more affluent, we had a daughter that's like 13 years younger than our oldest. Well, she didn't, she wasn't in on, you know, grasping hands, God, we need food, uh, literally. Uh, she wasn't in on this and that, and she was compliant and a good student, which it's really hard to discipline kids that give you no problems. And so we were walking through Macy's, or no, it couldn't have been Macy's, it was some pretty highfalutin store in Atlanta, and she walks over and goes, oh, wow, Dad, these are really cool. Could I get these? And it was a pair of jeans. And, and, and I looked at the price tag. It was like 165 diesel jeans. I'd never heard of diesel jeans at the time. I, I said, no. She goes, well, why? I said, it's $165. And she looked at me like, so? And I, I remember going home and saying, honey, we have so blown it with Annie because we, we haven't taught her. And so I'll, I'll, I'll give you the rest of the notes, and if I have to finish tomorrow, I will. But this is so important. We sat down and we figured out how much we spent. She was a junior in high school, middle of her year. Toothpaste, makeup, 
lunches, camps, anything that we ever spent on Annie. Teresa did all that hard work. And we came up with a number. And then I sat down and I said, Annie, in a year and a half, you're going to go off to college. And your father has blown it. I have sinned against God and against you. He has called me to prepare you in the most important area. And because you're compliant and you don't ask for much and you get great grades, I just, I, it just, I blew it. So you need to learn the value of money. And so every month we're going to write you this check for this amount of money. And if, if you run out in 20 days, <laughs> good luck. But... Uh, everything from your giving to makeup to lunches, this is, this is it. This is your money for you to manage completely on your own. And, um, and so, okay. So, of course, she started working on all that. And um, I will tell you, it was uh, two or three months later, we're walking through a similar store and, uh, wow, Dad, look at that blouse. Isn't that great? And I said, I don't know. I said, yeah. And then she takes the tag, turns it over. $69. Dad, you can get this at TJ Maxx for $25, and it's got the same label. Oh, you know, whatever you say, Annie. It's your money. You can do with it what you want. Except, no, 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 it's God's money. And all I can tell you is, we've got to do a full court press on teaching our kids about money, about saving, about giving, about investing, about debt, about compound interest, about really thinking. Um, I read a statistic, it's old, like seven years old, but at the time, as many as 50% of college graduates were filing bankruptcy. The moment you go on campus, they give you a credit card and a t-shirt, and it's not a good combination. Keep these notes for tomorrow, uh, we can't let our kids, uh, and I, it's, this is all my fault. Uh, I'll finish this tomorrow, and we'll do the next part. And this, this is not good leadership or good teaching. Um, I don't know. Here, I'll just say this one last thing. I have never been more deeply concerned about the church of Jesus Christ. And the number one enemy, the other God, is not Satan. I was a pastor for 10 years thinking it's God against Satan. It's not. According to Jesus, it's God against mammon. And Satan energizes a world system to help us believe that that will be our security and our significance and our value. Help us, Lord Jesus. You've won the battle. Help us to walk in your victory. Amen.